Okay, move out. You're listening to the Valor Podcast with Nick Lehman, a show highlighting the people who defend the United States of America and those who support them. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello and welcome to the Valor Podcast. This episode, we're going to talk about keeping a promise. But more on that in a minute. First, I want to thank our show sponsors, Booyah Media. They have helped us with our website and online support. You can see their work at booyahmedia.com. That is booyahmedia.com. Our guest for this show is Alex Quaid. She's an accomplished journalist and has worked extensively in the military community covering war. Alex, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Nick. I am honored to be on your show. Oh, well, let's get at it. So I want to get into the, the, the movie that's coming out. I know you, we could talk Danger little, Close. Yeah, <laughs> Danger Close. Yeah, for any of you uh, non-military people, that, that's an airstrike that, you know, is close to our friendlies that the friendly is dropping on to the, the target. So a uh, little little fun fact there. But uh, so I want to get into that movie, The Danger Close. You know, take me through how you sort of said, you know what, I I did this and I'm going to do a movie about it. And I know it's it happened a few years ago, but you know what? I'm doing it. Here's the movie. Oh, absolutely, Nick. And great question, too, because basically I spent two years on and off with uh, America's Special Forces. Those are the Green Berets, the so-called A-teams, if you remember that Hollywood term from back when. And that's something that journalists do not get access to, or very, very rare circumstances do we get any sort of access to these special forces. It's something like a 24-hour, very babysat with a public affairs official uh, type of access. So this kind of access that I was able to get was very unprecedented, and I was able to shoot a lot, a lot of video with this little tiny handheld video camera and to try to uh, gain the trust of these hardened warriors and their families and it became really over the course of of all of this time and going back and forth with them to Iraq over two full year deployments and being able to go back through uh, training with them at Fort Carson in Colorado uh, was able to get enough video that it was uh, it was something that needed to do something bigger and I've managed to get a lot of little stories out and pieces on let's say the New York Times website uh, had a video and have had little videos here and there and in little film festivals. But it, it was always my mission to try to do something bigger. And originally it was trying to do a, a big CNN Presents special that uh, was able to uh, to get in with Hollywood and, and turn something that more of the American public will be uh, able to see, which is, a, which is a great, great opportunity for the American public to be able to have a little bit of an experience of what these these elite warriors go through. Definitely, and the first part of that movie, it it it's poetic. I mean, you there's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of things going on. There's F L F L I R video. There, I mean, there's all kinds of things at your disposal that you that you're visually watching, and and you're trying to get a grasp of that. Talk about how that kind of set up the scene for for what your journey is. 
Sure. The beginning of the film of Danger Close, I'm in Afghanistan, and originally I was supposed to be with 7th Special Forces Group, and I ended up at the last minute, about a day or so before this major, major Memorial Day timeframe operation. Uh, it was going to be this massive air assault into Helmand Province, which, of course, is the uh, birthplace of the Taliban uh, and uh, Al-Qaeda in, uh, in Afghanistan, and a hotbed, because that's where they grow all the poppies as well. And there was supposed to be this major air assault, and uh, basically right beforehand, we had a switch out, or what they call a chalk change, uh, and it ended up on a different Chinook in this mega air assault with the 1st and 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment out of Fort Bragg, and the 82nd uh, Cab out of Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina as well. So we were doing this massive air assault. And unfortunately, one of the Chinooks in this air assault was shot down by a Taliban surface-to-air missile. And this was one of these events that didn't show up in the news until WikiLeaks did that massive Afghan documents dump. And that was the big sexy headline at that time. But I knew because I was there and I had video and I was with the guys on the ground and was lucky to be able to share some of their stories. But it became the reason that we set up also in this film in Danger Close to show this is that I went straight from Afghanistan to embed with the ODAs, the Operational Detachment Alphas or the Special Forces A-teams in Iraq. And this was still weighing on me because this Chinook had been shot down and I was told I had no idea that I was supposed to actually be on that Chinook and I was told later by the platoon sergeant, Sergeant Greg Strickland, and by the Apache pilot, Stuart Patu, and by an A-10 pilot who had to do the Sandy combat search and rescue mission of looking for survivors, uh, his call sign Rhino, but I was told by all these troops later, and including the JTAC, uh, the Joint Terminal Attack Controller, Jimbo, uh, and you'll see him in the film, but I was told by all of these individuals that uh, I was supposed to be on that Chinook when we'd had that uh, that switch out, that chalk change. I never knew. And uh, so I felt this, this very big weighing sense of responsibility. I don't think necessarily survivor's guilt but I was told by Greg Strickland, this platoon sergeant who had to secure this crash site with this small platoon of men, and they were under fire and they were being ambushed by Taliban and, and they were having a heck of a time. I mean, it was uh, they were worried that it was going to be a Black Hawk Down situation and that uh, the enemy would get to get to our fallen, and they didn't want that. But he was told over the radio, uh, Sergeant Strickland, by command over the radio, that he needs to go back into that flaming helicopter to recount the bodies. He'd already gone in there once. He wouldn't let his men go in because it was such a horrendous situation. And he went back into that flaming fireball and he counted the bodies again because originally he had counted five. And he thought, well, I've got the crew. They're, they're covered. You know, I found five bodies. And they said, no, uh, there should be seven. They're, you know, the reporters. And he had to go back on in there and, and look for the reporters. And as, uh, as he said on camera, he had to, you know, look for me. And in the fog of war, you never know, you know, what, uh, you know, that was just the first first hour, literally, of a massive mission that went on for weeks. It was called Operation Kulang Harvest. And uh, But when I found that out later, uh, it was like a punch to the gut because 
that it just it really felt like something that I owed these guys to tell their stories because they had to go back into this flaming fireball of a helicopter and, and search for the reporter. And uh, it, it really hits close to home. As I said, I, I don't see it as survivor's guilt, but uh, it, it, it just it really weighed on me when I was heading then over to Iraq to go and embed with the Special Forces A-teams. And uh, that, was, that was on my, on my mind as I started going on combat missions and urban, urban night raids and all sorts of high-speed operations with these small A-teams in, in remote locations across Iraq. Yeah, Alex, that's, Alex, that's crazy. I, you know, I, I read a lot and study stories and stuff, but the, the common thing of, like, if there is one man killed in action or missing in action, everybody in country just drops everything, even the missions, on, and they go after, they go towards the danger of where that person may be. I, that just, that makes me, one, a proud American, but it just, I'm in awe that they run towards that danger of trying to recover their brother, their brother or their sister, in in arms. Oh, absolutely! And as I said, if you think that in in the course of this was just the very first hour of a huge operation. This had there were six hundred men on the ground. I was the only female with them, and it was it was spread out between the parish, an entire regiment, and special forces ODAs, and you know, on the uh, the eighty second uh, Air Cav unit. And it, it very quickly became also a, a complete combat search and air rescue mission. And there ended up being, while they already had aircraft that were racked and stacked for this mission for, for the combat part of it, it ended up being calling in all sorts of assets from all over the place. There were 15 aircraft racked and stacked on that mission uh, when the Chinook then went down. And uh, if you could imagine having to control that amount of aircraft and you had B-1 bombers and you had F-15s and you had all of the Apaches and you had the AC-130 Spectre gunship. And, uh, you know, on a side note, as a journalist, I've always been known back in my CNN days when I would do these very long-form specials for CNN Presents and special series for primetime shows such as Wolf Blitzer or Paula Zahn or Anderson Cooper. I was always known for putting the puzzle pieces together, and what I ended up doing with this was tracking down every single one of those aircraft that were racked and stacked on that, uh, that I call it the Chinook Down mission, to get their perspective and to get their aerial footage and to get uh, the crew's remembrances as well. And it wasn't just that it was an intense mission for the ground guys. It was it was a tense, tense mission for the AC-130 Spectre gunship, which, as you know, is the Spec Ops gunship that uh, has a howitzer on board and, and uh, uh, stays in very close contact with the guys on the ground. And uh, that uh, the crew for the AC-130 Spectre gunship said that that was their trial by fire night. And um, they ended up, uh, I think it was the winning the uh, Combat Search and Rescue Award uh, for that year, that, for that one mission. It was that intense of a night. Yeah, definitely. And and so what how did you get involved? What drew you to military affairs and veteran affairs as a journalist? What got you uh, into that into this sort of subject matter? Ah, how did I how did I uh get down this path? <laughs> well, Nick, I have been covering war zones since 1998. Uh that was uh 
Kosovo, Macedonia, Albania uh, for CNN. I was working for CNN at the time. And then when 9-11 happened, of course, it was uh, Afghanistan and Iraq pretty much perpetually embedded with different uh, the different service branches. So I've, I've covered every branch of service. And uh, at, at some point it became uh, uh, clear that uh, I had pretty much done, not to sound full of myself, but it, I had pretty much done almost everything there was possibly to do. I, I'd spent time with the Marines. I'd spent time on the aircraft carriers. I'd done ride-alongs. I'd been, you know, been on the ground. And it was time to see, well, what, what hasn't been done? And the nut that had not been cracked was getting into the special operations community. It was very rare to get any sort of coverage out of, uh, out of the entire community, let alone the Green Berets. And so uh, about 2006 on with CNN, I started to focus on uh, trying, to get, trying to get a foot into, in the door with the special operations community. So I managed to cover the Air Force Special Operations uh, PJs, uh, did a big series with them, and uh, did stuff with the uh, Air Force Combat Controllers, and slowly, surely, wheedled my way in <laughs> to uh, cover those very quiet professionals known as the Green Berets. But as far as my first, my very first war zone experiences, which, which is a little interesting, but my very first war experience, not war zone, but I was an intern at the White House during uh, President George H.W. Bush when the Persian Gulf War was happening. And so I had this front seat from a very, a, a very amazing vantage point to view war. And that just kind of got me hooked that it's like, look at the history unfolding and look how important this is to the nation to have good information. I was working in Marlon Fitzwater's press office at that time. And so that really piqued my interest. But then I was a young cub reporter uh, for the uh, uh, CBS affiliate uh, in local news in Atlanta, Georgia. And at that time, uh, my newlywed husband from CNN was a sound tech, and uh, we hadn't been married long. And I got a phone call in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. from a CNN vice president who uh, called me. And at that point, we still had telemarketers. And I was thinking, who is calling at 3 a.m. in the morning? And it was not a telemarketer. It was a CNN vice president saying, Alex, uh, do you know your husband's blood type? Uh, he's, been, he's been injured in Sarajevo. And it turned out that uh, the Serbs had lobbed a rocket or a mortar into the, into the Olympic press center, which is where all of the world's press were, were uh, covering the Sarajevo uh, conflict. And he was the, the person who was injured the most. And uh, I was very appreciative for the phone call because they were also alerting me that within a couple of hours, that you know, basically at 6 a.m. or such, uh, there would be video on Good Morning America and the Today Show and all of the networks and to be aware of that because it might not be uh, great stuff to look at. And that very much affected me because uh, literally a few hours later, there was David uh, bleeding and moaning and being carried on a, make on a makeshift stretcher across the TV screen. And a couple hours later, I was on a plane with a CNN vice president uh, to help go get him out of Sarajevo and out of the war zone and, and try to uh, get him care. And again, at that point in time, polytrauma was, uh, was, not, uh, was not de rigueur and 
things like IEDs and blast injuries, uh, they, they were not something that we all knew about because, of course, this is before Iraq. <laughs> this is years before. And it really, uh, I became a caregiver for two years of getting a, a spouse through several surgeries and all that that entails. And it really made me very empathetic for future coverage as a reporter with uh, trying to be uh, good with people who are in wounded warrior situations and their families and knowing knowing what uh, how difficult that is and, and all that they are going through. And it made me a better reporter. It also made me uh, more caring and, and careful. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the crazy thing that, that I've seen, you know, we've had these massive invasions with Iraq and Afghanistan, and, you know, there's, you know, 50,000, 100,000 men and women going into in, in country. But now, you know, the, the wars are changing. They're, they're more becoming special operator wars where, you know, we have these advisors and, you know, they're, they're kind of boots on the ground types. And, you know, just recently in the last few years, I mean, we've had five or six Green Berets or special operators killed. How, how as a, you see, a, what I'm getting at is as a journalist, and, you know, I was a former journalist here, how do we cover this story without compromising the special operations community, but also being able to tell their story? Oh, absolutely. And and that's something that, that is the reason, in fact, why you do not see a coverage of special operations. It's because their missions are so important and so classified and uh, the, these soldiers are so elite that the commands, uh, Special Operations Command, they don't want anybody to know who these, who these men are. And, and, very, and there are some women in there uh, in different capacities, uh, but very few and far between. But it is a person, it is a security issue. All of these people are in danger and under threat. And the threat is that they will be uh, that, you know, the bad guys will, will come after their families back home, that they will target them, and the threat is very real. It's also a threat to get their faces out that, you know, they may not be able to have a job in the future because people will know and, and they could still be a target. But uh, I've always believed that there are ways to share these human stories of these hardworking special operations forces, these troops, without compromising the mission or their personnel, their security, or the TTPs, the techniques, the tactics, and the procedures. I really think that there's a way of sharing their stories. If you're very careful, and I call it doing very human stories, you don't have to talk about the strategy or give away the locations, but there are ways to be able to tell their stories that the American taxpayer can see a little bit, to understand a little bit, and to document for history so that their service and sacrifice are not forgotten. I've always thought that uh, the operators would never leave a soldier behind, but I really believe that their stories and their truth should not be left behind either. I mean, think about all of these stories that we have no idea of from Vietnam of, of these special operators that are still 40, 50 years later now that are still under wraps. And if you think of, I like to use the example of, uh, think of Black Hawk Down. Think of that book that Mark Bowden wrote. If he hadn't, as an author, as a journalist, tracked down these rangers, and rangers are, are special, special operators on the Army side as well. If he hadn't bothered to track them down and try to get their stories, we would not, as, as Americans, have this 
story that is so iconic and is such a history marker uh, that it, and everybody, of course, thinks of the Hollywood movie. But think of it if we did not as a society even know this story. And there's so many stories like that. That was just one mission. It's the same thing with all of these stories, maybe not to that extent as far as the drama goes. But if you figure that there are raids going on every night, multiple, multiple uh, raids in different countries, there are stories left and right. And it's a shame if the American public doesn't get to have a little bit of that. And that's really what we tried to do with Danger Close. And I'm so careful with the people that are in these films. And I don't just say that they're big, burly Green Berets, but they are people. And that's what I want people to understand. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that, that's a great transition. Uh, you know, part of the movie is about uh, uh, com- combat outpost uh, Pirelli. And tell me about uh, uh, you know, Rob and, and what he did for our country. Oh, absolutely. Well, I met Rob and his uh, ODA, uh, ODA 072, that's uh, an A-team, um, on, the, on a number of missions before we actually see him in the film. And uh, was very, <laughs> he, he, he had made an impression on his team because his team was a, uh, all of these teams, they're, they're only 12 men and sometimes less. And they are living alone and unafraid on the fringes of the empire. So it's not like they're living on a big base. They will just build these little, almost like a little safe house in the middle of nowhere and have no, basically no support. And they're supposed to, uh, I, I like to say, make the magic happen. But, uh, he was the He was the engineer for their team, the combat engineer, or the 18 Charlie. And that position, you know, of course, every, every Green Beret is a gunner first. And then they have their expertise, their specialty. And Rob's was being a combat engineer. So not only did he blow things up, but he also built things. And in this case, he built their combat outpost or their little tiny team house in the middle of nowhere. And so he was very much responsible for their security and their safety and and trying to uh, have living conditions for them. And it was very rough, uh, a very rough location. I was warned by the Special Forces commander before I went out there, Colonel Derek Jones, that uh, this is a very rough team and it's very rough living. And uh, had some of the other Green Berets were were were, trying, were giving me the eyeball as far as uh, you know, I'm a girl and going out there and it's going to be rough. And it's like, nah, I can hack it. But uh, going out there, it was rough. They were. Uh, Oh, well, let's see. They, they, <laughs> there was no laundry. They were having pallets of water airdropped in. Uh, there were still MREs and that type of thing. And, uh, but they did have shelter, and they did have T-walls and security uh, and a perimeter around them, and they were making do. And, uh, you know, they were <laughs> uh, – they, they had very uh, – Spartan latrines, I won't go into detail, but uh, it, uh, <laughs> it was outside. And, uh, uh, but Rob was uh, beloved by the team because, first off, all Special Forces uh, operators are also airborne, which means, of course, that they all have to uh, jump out of airplanes all the time. And uh, Rob had a fear of heights, but he wasn't going to let that stop him. And uh, uh, so every time that they would jump out of an airplane, uh, he ended up throwing up. And that was, uh, that of course endeared him to everybody. And he had a very, very thick Boston accent. And so uh, during one operation, uh, his his men on the radio, his, his other battle buddies and brothers, they heard him say, they're shooting howitzers at us. And they were the, the the other Green Berets were looking at each other and they're like, howitzers. 
they're shooting howitzers out or houses. They couldn't figure out what he was saying. They thought he was saying houses and he meant howitzers. <laughs> so it, and that was just because of his thick accent, houses and, the, and howitzers. And the cocky. But, uh, well, and <laughs> but uh, unfortunately on one of the missions, uh, and I'd met uh, Rob on a, a company air assault earlier. And unfortunately on one of the other missions, he, uh, he was killed in action. He sacrificed his life, and uh, it uh, his actions did save the Iraqis that these Green Berets were advising and saved his brothers as well. And his brothers, being a very, very small unit, uh, this affects people greatly, especially these very small teams that are together for years, and they know everything about each other, and uh, it greatly affected his team. And when... Uh, uh, I still went on missions with his team afterwards, and they were still grieving. And at some point uh, during one of the missions, I ended up getting injured and had to go, eventually had to go home <laughs> back to the States and uh, get some, some physical therapy. I couldn't fake that I was fine anymore, and uh, even though I wanted to keep on the story. But uh, during, while I was getting uh, fixed up stateside, I uh, I spent time with Rob's family, his Gold Star family, and his father, Rob Pirelli, and his sister, Stacy Pirelli. They had invited me to uh, Rob's memorial service at USASOC, which is the U.S. Army Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg. They do a big memorial service every Memorial Day for all of the special operators that are killed in action every year. And they invited me to go with them to that. And uh, we shared stories about Rob, and I shared a photo uh, with Bob Pirelli, Rob's dad. I shared a photo of Rob's A-team, and they had painted an, an insignia. They had come up with a basically like a logo, a design, and they had uh, painted this on one of the security T-walls, these big cement barriers, and they renamed uh, their, their team area, Combat Outpost Pirelli and Rob's Honor, and I gave this photo to Rob's dad uh, down there at Fort Bragg at this memorial service. And uh, before the next event scheduled for that day, because it was a whole weekend of events, Bob uh, took this photo off to Bragg Boulevard and got it, uh, got that insignia tattooed on, on the length of his calf. And that to me right there just speaks volumes about the love of a, of a, of a family and of the love of a father for a son and, yeah, for a goal in within a gold star family, but it also shows the love of a brotherhood and these these Green Beret A teams that they would do such a thing. And uh, it was then that Bob Pirelli asked me, you know, he knew that I was going to be going back to these same teams uh, to follow up with them all over the course of the next year's deployment in Iraq. And he asked me to uh, try to get back to Bob to uh, Rob's combat outpost and to let him know that it was still there and that this T-wall, this insignia wall was still there. And I, I had thought that this was something that I would have, I would be doing anyway because journalistically I've, I've always liked to, uh, to full circle and to, to see where things lead next and to not just kind of rush off to the next story. And uh, so then that next year I did make it uh, back to Iraq and to the teams. And Rob's team, unfortunately, was – in a completely different part of Iraq and nowhere near Combat Outpost Pirelli. And uh, his team also, uh, the, the medic, uh, Medic Kim, who had tried to 
help Rob breathe his last breaths. And uh, he also asked me if I could try to make it back to to this uh, combat outpost in remote Diala province and uh, let them know that uh, this T-wall was still standing. And, and also because uh, they, they thought it would have been nice to be back there that year and to be able to spend time where, where Rob had built this combat outpost for them. So basically I'd been taskered and uh, had a mission. And uh, uh, so it, within the film of Danger Close, you'll see a number of adventures of me hopscotching and hitchhiking from Special Forces A-Team to Special Forces A-Team to get uh, about 300 miles all over the place in Iraq to get back to Combat Outpost Pirelli. And that's one of the main story arcs in there. But along the way, we have uh, lots of adventures with the A-Teams and go on many missions. And this is the first time that the American audience gets to really go along on combat missions with, with Green Berets and with these A-Teams. And so the the audience really gets a sense of you are there because it's just me and my little video camera and I'm chasing these green berets in at the back of the stack as they're going into a house, as they're clearing a target, as they're uh, catching these high value target individuals and interrogating them. And, and with, with my little video camera, you're also along the ride, as I said, for, uh, for some of these air assaults where you're uh, going into hot landing zones and and other missions where you're under under sniper fire and doing basically the the uh, equivalent of a modern day up armored cavalry charge through wadis in in Iraq and nobody has had this access to the special forces uh, ever this type of access this long form access so this is a very unique opportunity for the audience to be able to experience a little bit of what it is like to be with these types of teams who are so close and, and to see what types of human beings they are. Uh, they don't come across as hardware and robocops. They're very human and you get to meet their families too. Oh yeah. I mean, it, the, the watching the footage, you know, I watched it a couple nights ago and it, I mean, it, it puts cops to shame the show cops because it's like you have aerial footage, you have night vision, you have doors being kicked down. I mean, it's for an old radio journalist, the natural sound was like, Oh man, this is awesome. And, uh, (laughs) I'm glad you approved Nick, because to me, it's, it's when you just let it breathe and you let the audience be there for it to experience it, as opposed to just having somebody talk and talk and talk over it. And, and it's nice to be able to just feel like you are there. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, and you know, like I was telling, uh, saying in the first part of the inter- this interview is that, you know, the first part of it is it was very poetic, and I, you know, I, not to be the the military guy that, that uh, you know that looks at military affairs and is like, oh, everything's poetic, but I mean, it had a very good rhythm to it, and it's like, wow, this is a very, you know, in a sense, a beautiful story being told. Oh, well, thank you. There's there's a lot of stories that you that I couldn't tell, unfortunately, in 87 minutes, but but uh, love to just share a couple of these these moments that uh, that you don't get to see in the film. But just to give you a sense of these individuals, these Green Berets, these very tight teams, uh, they they had to teach me about weapons and you figure. Most most people don't think of journalists uh, wanting to pick up a gun, and, and we see all the coverage these days, but uh, they taught me about weapons. They wanted to see if I'd flinch 
basically as a member of the press when handed a firearm. And no, I never packed heat like Geraldo Rivera did (laughs) way back when, when he said he was going to be taking out Saddam Hussein all by himself at the beginning of the Iraq war. And drawing the plans uh, in the sand. (laughs) Yes, he did. Which, uh, which, which made life difficult for all of us journalists to be able to keep trying to cover war zones because it's, it's those types of things, which, uh, make the military very, very leery, and especially the Special Operations Commander. They can just use that as an example to say no to somebody like me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I never packed heat because that would make me a combatant. Uh, but the Green Berets did teach me on what they had in, in each of their team's arsenals, and I probably amused them on their big Barrett sniper rifle. Uh, one of the weapons sergeants uh, said he was more worried that I might hurt myself but the danger was real. Uh, the special forces commander out there in charge of uh, an entire company of teams, he told me that every single one of his men was on a hit list by name and that by me virtue of being with them that I was a target too and I was probably putting them more at risk because wouldn't it be a great propaganda value for uh, for the enemy to have this blonde western female uh, to be able to use for propaganda and the enemy, they, they knew who we were and they had bounties out for the capture of a special forces soldier. I think it went to uh, about 50, starting at about $50,000 per, per soldier. If, if one could be caught a special forces soldier. And uh, that's why the green berets told me that if it was, as they put it, a really bad day and the team was slaughtered around me, which I don't think that would ever happen because they are that, that good. <laughs> but, uh, they, they were dead serious. They said that if it was a really bad day, that I must not allow myself to be captured. And I was to grab one of their weapons and save one bullet for myself. And that, that sounds dramatic, but they, they were dead serious. It wasn't to scare me. It was, it was one of these things to consider with, with being out there and covering these, these high-speed individuals. And they said that that would be preferable to any sort of interrogation or getting my head cut off on the internet for propaganda value, like they have done to my colleague from the Wall Street Journal, Daniel Pearl, and of course, more recently to James Foley and Stephen Sotloff. So just imagine this this distraction of having a Western female journalist being captured if, if that were to happen, and imagine how that would really cl- you know cloud the real story over there, the story of these special forces men and the missions that they're doing. You know, I I, uh, I always refer back to the Committee to Protect Journalists, but I think 48, 48 reporters were killed just this last year, and eight have already been killed uh, this year in, in 2017 alone. Um, you know, but it's it's this risk that makes me want to go back, because if we don't go back, who will? Uh, news organizations have drastically reduced their war budgets. You know, it's very dangerous and very expensive to uh, cover war. Um, and that's why documentaries, these very special films like Danger Close are so important. We really need to continue to document their, these war stories for humanity and for history. And I think that is really the best definition also of a war reporter, because I don't think war reporters, or at least in my case, it's not an adrenaline junkie. It's not being some foolhardy thrill seeker, but it's really somebody who can engage not only the enemy, but also the truth. And I really want to share the truth of these, of these special forces soldiers' lives. And you can't really do that from a TV studio in New York or from an occasional 
anchorman dropping in and, and just, uh, you know, walking around a chow hall and that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm happy when we get any co sort of coverage whatsoever, uh, any sort of coverage uh, of our special forces and of our troops overseas is, is a good thing. But uh, how else can we explain and justify very these faraway conflicts if we don't care as a society enough to try to record them? Because it's really in their stories that you find the real truth. And I, I think that you will find a lot of truth in Danger Close because it's very human and we really take you along for the ride. Oh, definitely. And uh, to add on to your earlier point about, you know, the 12 guys and, you know, you would just be just fine. I, I totally agree with our American forces. It's a, it's like Sparta and, you know, they, they, we, we will fight in the shade, as they say in the movie. Oh, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> it, it, you brought up Sparta. In fact, at Combat Outpost Pirelli, and you'll see in the video as I pan the little camera around, uh, Rob or somebody painted a, a little handheld sign that said, this is Sparta. <laughs> So, oh yeah, nice it, one there, Nick. Yeah, no, I yeah, I, I was hoping we could get that in because every uh, <laughs> military fan and veteran and civilian loves that movie. But so I I want to kind of tie these things up here is is uh, sort of uh, one. You're a journalist. I I am you know kind of come in and out of uh, journalism when when I need to be when I get hired on things. But uh, what wh how can you help? a person that's maybe listening and says, you know what, I have a granddad or I have a father or, you know, I have a brother and they were special operations, but they never talk about it and they don't do anything. So what are some secret sauce things that, you know, Alex Quaid can give some advice, some life advice on, on getting, getting their family members to open up about their, their veteran experience, their military experience. Oh, that is such a good question. I'm glad that you asked that, Nick, because I am finding uh, it, it's the strangest thing. Maybe not strange. I think it's human nature. I'm finding that a ton of Vietnam veterans, and especially on the special operations side, these secret squirrely guys, uh, they are coming to me because they want to tell their stories. They want to, to know that what they did made a difference or mattered, that they made a difference, that it that it was worth something, not necessarily about politics or about right and wrong, but that they had an impact and, and they, they made a difference in this world. And I think that uh, for family members or for people who are in the office and, and working with, with some veterans, it's, it's ve being very open to just listening and to not, not being judgmental and just giving people a chance to to just un unload a little bit and to, to share their experience. And it might be just as simple as, uh, you know, I, as cliche as it is, but uh, thank you so much for your service. I, I didn't get to serve or, or I, don't, I didn't have that experience. And I would love to hear a little bit more. And when you're ready, I'd love, I'd love to hear some of your experiences because that would help me to understand more. And just being quiet and accepting and, and to listen to what all they have to say. I think that there are so many veterans who would like to uh, who would like to share their stories. And as I said, I have so many people who are coming to me, not just because I'm a reporter, but basically because I, I just want to compassionately listen to what they have to say and to let them know that, yes, what they did made a difference. And that, I think, is a very human thing that everybody wants to know that they had purpose in this lifetime and while they were on Earth and what they did mattered. And it's really about that. It's making a human being feel that, that they matter. 
Oh yeah, and they did some uh, some incredible things, like you know, kicking down doors and getting people off the terrorist list. That you know, that to me, I I joke with the, you know, the guy, my friends that are about my age that have done a couple of deployments. Like, you know, I joke with you, man, but I really appreciate that you're you know taking care of business so I could put my kids to bed at night. And and then they they're oh like, absolutely. And well, like, and the other thing is that. Uh, it can even come from from a from a corporate type of level or that type of a discussion because veterans are the most resourceful people that I have ever met. I, I know that I'm a little biased because uh, I've spent so much uh, time with them, but they are so it, resourceful it. I, and no, they have I, I, I backgrounds it. that translate. And I've learned so many things that most civilians don't know. And I think that uh, if civilians are are open to seeing that they're that these skill sets translate. On the you know on the battlefield, as you know, those skills can mean the difference between life and death. But you really see that in the corporate world too—not life and death, but as far as the just the different managerial skills and the different the the different decision-making process and the be able the being able to basically complete a mission or a job and do whatever it takes to get it done. And uh, it may be coming coming to a veteran. Uh, with a different angle as far as like, well, how would you approach this problem in the military as far as a problem-solving skill? And that's a complete different way of getting somebody to open up. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so finally, I, to tie this all up, you spent a lot of time with, with, uh, with the military on active duty and veterans and all the, all the such. So you, you've, you've gotten accustomed to jargon. I heard a lot of jargon and, well, not a lot, but just some <laughs> sprinkled in. So I want. Here's a little thing I want to do. I want to do. Give me a, a jargon sentence and then translate it to a civilian for our audience, if you can. Not to put you on the spot and be like piano bar. <laughs> well, I mean, there is so much jargon. Um, there, of course, is. Uh, you know, I mean, I can just rattle off a, bu- a bunch of acronyms. It might not make sense in a sentence, but uh, you know, you've got whiskey tango foxtrot. You've got uh, Charlie Mike. I'm always told to Charlie Mike, uh, my my mentor and Medal of Honor recipient, uh, Colonel Bob Howard, who was uh, uh, who was nominated for the Medal of Honor three times. He was constantly telling me to Charlie Mike, and sometimes I will sign off on my emails or sign off to people saying Charlie Mike. And I have civilians who who have no clue what that means, and I have to explain it means continue the mission. Basically, you got to do whatever it takes to get the job done. And then, of course, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot recently became a, a bit more uh, uh, in the co- in colloquial sense because of the the movie, the Tina Fey movie that came out, which. Uh, that that can mean uh, a little something else, <laughs> and I won't I won't say that one out loud. I'll see how you want to phrase that one, Nick. <laughs> Look, listen to that giggle. Fudge. Gotcha. We'll just say fudge at the end. And so, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. I, I just said we'll just say fudge at the end, and you know they're. Yes, uh, yes, that's it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's fun. Exactly. It's, uh, it's fun. And. So uh, tell me, I know Danger Close is releasing April 28th, but how can people go to the theaters or can they watch it on video demand? What, what, all the streams that are coming into to this uh, big movie release? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it, it is in uh, in major cities, uh, limited theatrical release uh, this Friday, April 28th. Uh, but it will already be, uh, they are already doing pre-sales uh, very quickly here. I think it's already online for pre-sales around the 
second of May or such, but uh, by May 16th, so just in a few weeks away, you will already be able to buy DVDs in, in big stores like Walmart and online with Apple and iTunes and, and, uh, and all of that. It'll be on all of the various video on demand and digital platforms, and uh, that's uh, distributed by Gravitas Ventures. And I want you guys to go watch it so that you can see if Alex makes it to Combat Outpost Pirelli. I'm not going to ruin it. You're going to have to watch it. That's, that's all I'm going to say. And uh, <laughs> So thanks for listening to the Valor Podcast. Make sure to like us on Facebook, and you, su- you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play or any podcast management app. Visit our website at thevalorpodcast.com. That is thevalorpodcast.com. Finally, find your mission. There are many veteran organizations and nonprofits and veterans needing your help. I promise. You'll make some great friends along the way. And as Alex was saying, Charlie Mike.